Hello, my name's Tom Boone. And I'm Joanna Bailey. Welcome to a brand new episode of the Simple Flying Podcast, where we'll give you the lowdown on the latest news from the world of commercial aviation. Here's what we have for you this week. Coming up today, I'll recap a couple of alarming aviation incidents of the past week, while Tom sees why Virgin Atlantic has been fined for flying over Iraq. Joe will look at what's going on with Wizz Air, while I recap my first flight on a 737 MAX. Finally, I'll explore Air Baltic's partnership with SpaceX Starlink and what it means for passengers. So now you know what's in store, let's get on with the show. And Joe, you've been quite... Um... Not really telling us what you're going to talk about with alarming aviation incidents of the past <laughs> week, but I've been on vacation, so I don't really know what's been happening. Please do enlighten me. I'm sure this first one you've heard about, there were a couple of notable incidents in the last week. Um, the first one, I think almost everybody in the aviation world knows about. So Tom, catch up, for goodness sake. <laughs> <laughs> so it involved um, American Airlines and a Boeing 777 that almost collided with a Delta 737 at New York's JFK airport. So basically what happened was the Delta 737 was departing for the Dominican Republic, but the American 777 crossed the active runway as the, as the 737 was making its takeoff roll. Um, we secured some air traffic controller recordings and it was kind of chilling hearing the controller yelling, Delta 1943, cancel takeoff clearance in quite a sort of panicked tone. I think he said some naughty words before that as well, didn't yeah, he? Yeah, I wasn't going to repeat those for the podcast, but the recordings are there this on is a Single clean Flying. Podcast. Exactly. <laughs> PG only. Um so and the seven three seven did manage to abort its takeoff and cleared the runway safely. Um so American Airlines, the Triple Seven was heading to London and it seems like they might have got their directions wrong. So they were taxiing on taxiway B for departure from runway 04L and had been cleared to cross runway 31L which was the active runway on taxiway K. However, the aircraft continued straight on, joined taxiway J and crossed O4L at taxiway J about 1,200 metres down the runway. Um, so the tower subsequently instructed American Airlines to call a phone number due to pilot deviation. Um, yeah. As you know, that's not a good thing. <laughs> Thankfully, I never had that when I was flying. So, <laughs> <laughs> the, yeah, the tower phone call is not a not a pleasant thing for any pilot. Um, so after they had the phone call, American Airlines did depart from one, runway 31L about 30 minutes later. Um, the Delta aircraft, however, had to return to the apron and remained on the ground for around 15 hours, um, likely undergoing some inspection checks because they had to put the brakes on rather hard. Um, they did depart for uh, the Dominican Republic, um, but with a delay of about 14 and a half hours on arrival. So the FAA said, according to their preliminary analysis, that the 737 managed to stop about a thousand feet short of the intersection with taxiway J where the 777 was. So... You know, it was a safe-ish distance, but a thousand feet isn't that far when you're going as fast as the 737 goes on takeoff. Um, naturally, the the FAA and the NTSB are investigating the incident. It, it, it kind of sounds on the face of it a bit like the Pan Am thing in, um, Tenerife. in the Canary Islands. Obviously, mm. it was slightly better weather, I think, but... Um, you know, that was the most devastating accident ever. So you can just imagine how bad this would have been if things hadn't gone exactly as they did. Yeah, thankfully, those Delta pilots were really on the ball and managed mm. to 
you know, stop the situation unfolding, but it could have been a lot worse. And I think there mm. will be some fallout from this. Um, I read something today about changes to um, directions at some airports and um, how some pilots, the pilots that are going through training are being trained on these new directions, but the pilots that are already in service with airlines are being issued bulletins, which, you know, as we know from things that we send our staff at Simple Flying, they may or may not read. <laughs> so, <laughs> no um, comment. Yeah, it's um, maybe raising a training issue. Maybe it was a fatigue issue, but I'm sure it'll all come out in the wash. Anyway, mm. we're really pleased to see that nobody was hurt in the incident and that everything yeah. was all right in the long run. Um, and a separate incident I just wanted to mention because it was kind of interesting um, was a Delta A330 that landed short of the runway at Schiphol in Amsterdam. So it mm. was operating flight DL134 and it was directed to land on the Oostbahn, which is Schiphol's oh, shortest God. runway. Um, this was because a wind advisory was in place across all of the Netherlands. And they touched down a bit short and the rear wheels struck the grass ahead of the runway. There was some damage to the landing strip, particularly to the pavement. It was repaired fairly shortly. Um, there were a couple of runway lights that were damaged that were inoperable for several hours after the incident. Um, Schiphol only closed the Oostbahn for about an hour. Um, but it was interesting because the Oostbahn isn't often used for commercial flights. Um, Schiphol's got six, six runways in total. Um, two of them are usually active at all times. Five of them are designed for commercial operations, but the sixth is usually just for general aviation, private jets and helicopters. And that is, of course, the 2014 metre long Oostbahn. Um, it's a remnant of the old Schiphol Airport and has a, a northwest, southwest or, or northeast, southwest orientation. And it's only used for commercial operations in exceptional weather, which it was this day. Now, an A330 is perfectly capable of landing on a runway that length, um, but it's likely the pilot was aware it was a short runway and was maybe trying to land at the threshold rather than the touchdown zone to maximise the distance that he had to stop um, and basically messed up a little bit. Uh, Happens. <laughs> on the upside, there was no damage to the aircraft and all the passengers were safe. Um, have you ever landed on the Oostbahn? Tom? Um, I'm not sure if I've landed on the Oostbahn. I've landed many times on the Polderbahn, which is, I know, everyone's least favourite. Um, <laughs> That's the one with the three-hour taxi, right? <laughs> yeah, it's like further from the airport than Amsterdam, I think. <laughs> it should be its own little airport. But uh, no, I don't think I've been on the Oostbahn yet. Um, okay, let's hope if you do, the pilots manage to land on the paved area, not the grass before it. I mean, the last time I went into Amsterdam with general aviation, we used Lelystad, which is um, sort of nearby. Mm. Um, but the runway there was shortened for works uh, when we landed. So that was quite fun. Um, <laughs> but they do have a lovely KLM 747 at the end of the runway that you can just stare at. Oh, nice. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, um, KLM, that's interesting because they're sort of tied with Air France and Delta, aren't they? And Delta and is kind of tied with Virgin Atlantic. Is this and this your is very like awful the... segue to your topic? Yes, yes, <laughs> yes. Um, so Delta and Virgin, well, that was quite interesting because they were fined $1 million by um, the US Department of Transport. You may be wondering why the US is um, fining Virgin Atlantic, especially because the flight was going from the UK to India. Well, basically, um, it seems that the flight flew through Iraqi airspace and this, 
you know, if it was just a Virgin Atlantic flight flying from um, London to India, happy days, no one gives. But because it had a Delta code share, it was under, it falls under the remit of the United States Department of Transportation. And flying over Iraq is generally a bit of a no-no there. Um, so according to um, the DOT, these violations occurred between September um, 2020 and 2021. And um, they've also got a cease and desist uh, to prevent further violations. But um, Virgin's now adjusted its flight plans to avoid the restricted airspace. Um, it's you know it's not a fun um, situation to be in, but I can eat, I can see how how it happened because you may be thinking, well, you know, if you're flying with this, you should know it. But it's it's not the first time it's happened. I remember in 2020, I was writing about Emirates uh, finding themselves in a similar hot water um, because they were using a JetBlue um, code on Iran overflights. So, you know, it's it's quite interesting because these are flights that are not operated by US carriers and they're not going anywhere near the US, but they still fall under this remit. So um, talking about Virgin, the DOT said Virgin Atlantic states that it takes seriously its responsibility to, sorry, this is Virgin said, <laughs> Virgin said that it takes seriously its responsibility to comply with um, all department regulations and requirements in its operating permits, including the requirement not to operate flights carrying a US carrier's designated code that enter, depart, or transit the airspace of any area whose airspace the FAA has issued a flight prohibition for US civil aviation. Virgin states that it has historically complied with this requirement, that it has a strong safety record and a robust culture of regulatory compliance, and is an industry leader in aviation security around the world. So, you know, I think it's a bit of an oversight, but, you know, I I can see why it happened. And it's clearly not nearly as drastic as uh, what you were talking about just before. But um, I definitely think now that they've had to pay quite a bit of money to the DOT, Virgin will be a lot more careful about this in the future. And hopefully um, anyone else flying over Iran or Iraq um, will hear this podcast and <laughs> think, have we got a US code share? Do we need to do something about this? <laughs> the darker sides of code sharing is something that mm. we don't necessarily think about. But yeah. uh, one airline that I don't think has any code shares is Europe's low-cost carrier, Wizz Air. Did you like my segue? Yes, I did. That was much better than mine. You need to give me some advice. <laughs> so there's some interesting things going on at Wiz. Um, as expected, they've announced several new routes for this year. Um, some of them are fairly standard. For example, there's a Gatwick to Lyon route, which launched on January the 10th. It's going to be a winter seasonal service, perfect for skiers going to the Alps, of course. Um, some of the others are more interesting. Um, particularly interesting is the expansion into Saudi Arabia, which, as we we know has a lot going on with their aviation scene at the moment. Um, so January the 9th saw the launch of two routes to Saudi. One was from Bucharest to Riyadh um, and another one from Budapest to Riyadh. And there's more coming as well because there are connections planned for Jeddah um, from Bucharest and Budapest, which um, they flew a proving flight, I think it was, on January the 12th because there was kind of imagery of the touchdown and the water cannon and all that. But they're not planning to launch regular service until the autumn. Um, there's also one from from Rome Fiumicino to Jeddah, uh, which is kind of an interesting connection. So some of these are pretty long routes, like Rome to Saudi is a long way, but it's not Wiz's longest route. 
um, because that accolade goes to its service between Milan and Abu Dhabi, which is due to launch on July 24th. These two cities are almost 3,000 miles apart and the route clocks in at 6 hours 23 minutes outbound and 7 hours 20 minutes on the return. Um, so it's comfortably Wizz's longest route to date. Uh, it does fly several others that are over six hours long, for example, Bucharest, Gran Canaria, Vienna to Dubai. Um, of course, all of these really long routes are operated by the A321neo um, with the classic low-cost carrier service. You know, you don't get any food, you don't get anything um, to watch on a TV screen, but, you know, you do get the low fares. Um, however, one place it's not launching any new routes from is Cardiff because um, the airline is closing its Cardiff base. It had temporarily suspended most of the operations from Cardiff over the winter season. Um, it was only opened in April last year and we pl it had planned to resume this spring. Mm. In fact, there was yeah. talk about expanded capacity. It was going to be a major hub for the UK. Sorry, Tom, what were you saying? I was just going to say, I remember they made such a big song and dance when they arrived in Cardiff. Yeah. So it's funny that they're just not interested now. Yeah, definitely. So the last um, operations there will be on January 25th. Um, any passengers that are booked to fly beyond that are going to be encouraged to fly from one of its other many bases in the UK. Um, but I have to say those passengers might not have the best time rebooking because Wiz is under some scrutiny for passenger complaints. In fact, the UK CAA says that Wiz is the most complained about airline in the country. Um, some 811 passengers per million flown have launched claims against the airline in quarter three of last year. So that's July to September, mostly relating to delays and cancellations. Um, but that rate is three times higher than its competitor competitors, EasyJet and Ryanair. Um, the airline's accused of not resolving the complaints fast enough. Many passengers actually had to take their claims to Alternative Dispute Resolution, ADR. Um, in fact, Wizz Air paid out over £53,000 in quarter three. So that's an average of £635 or around $780 per claim. Um, but passengers might be in for another shock because it's been revealed that Wizz uses premium rate phone numbers for its customer contact centre. In fact, one passenger said he spent $270 calling Wiz just to rebook his flights. Um, so you'll need that compensation to pay your phone bill, I guess, if you mm. have to contact the airline. So, you know, Wiz, clearly lots of ambition to expand, but I think they need to pick up their customer service game a little bit. Yeah, well, I mean, if you need someone to review the seven-hour Wiz flight, you know where to go. <laughs> you? <laughs> Yeah, I'd do it. <laughs> Milan's easy to get to from here. <laughs> I'd do it if they had Wi-Fi. I'd be much more encouraged if they had Wi-Fi on the flight. But um... I would do it during working hours without Wi-Fi. <laughs> nice. I like that, Tom. <laughs> but yeah, um, you know one other low-cost carrier that has a big hub in Milan? Who's that then? Ryanair. <laughs> oh, of course. Back to Tom's favourite airline. Yeah. Well, I have a love-hate relationship with Ryanair, but it's more love this time than hate. Um, so I wanted to talk a little bit more about that because um, I had the joy or um, the opposite of joy flying two Ryanair flights in the past week or so. The first one, you know, um, it wasn't actually Ryanair that I had an issue with, but it was more um, I flew from Frankfurt Hahn Airport. And I've done this a couple of times a long time ago, but... Um, you know, it's it's not something that I feel like I can love because the airport, you know, it's a two-hour bus ride away. 
the only bus arrives three hours before the flight. Um, so we got there and, you know, there is literally just a McDonald's and a coffee shop. That's, um, it's not um, Heathrow Airport. So we went to McDonald's and then we went to the coffee shop and then we checked in. <laughs> Um, and then we went through security and there's nothing really on the other side of security. Either. There, there is a duty-free shop, but um, I feel it's more there for uh, sentiments rather than for people actually going there. Um, the toilets, you know, surprised me because they were, honestly, it was, it looked like a, a gas station toilet with all the graffiti. Um, I can verify that. Tom sent me a photo and uh, it was not what you'd expect from an yeah. airport lavatory, I have to say. Yeah, and um, then so it was um, me and two whiz flights going uh, all within the space of an hour, all from the same gate, it turned out. Um, so there was, you know, maybe 600 people, um, give or take, 500 to 600 people crammed into this small area, all trying to get to the same gate. And of course, we were the last flight. So some people missed one of the whiz flights because they were stuck in our queue and couldn't get through. And they, of course, weren't happy. Um, I did find it interesting, though, because there was a 747 sat there uh, with no engines, and it was an ex-Korean Air one. Um, I discovered that it went to sit in the desert in Penal uh, in Arizona for, I think, seven years or so. Um, and then it was removed from storage, uh, sent to San Bernardino in Los Angeles for a, a month or so for storage. And then it flew from um, it flew from San Bernardino to Delhi, uh, sorry, to see... Um, uh, Anchorage and then to Delhi and then to Frankfurt Hahn in summer 2021 and it's just been sat there since. Um, yeah, I don't know what's going on with it, but I do want to uh, dig in. And the other interesting 747 I saw there was it was an Atlas Air passenger 747 arriving, but um, I did some digging and that was actually the um, last Virgin Atlantic 747 that our colleague Jake got to see Um a bit before, but that was the outbound, which wasn't so great. Coming back, I actually took my first 737 MAX flight because, um, you know, I'm surprised it took this long, but um, I specifically booked that flight to be on the MAX. Um, and I did something that I never usually do when flying Ryanair, and I booked a seat. Um, I specifically chose, uh, I think it was 21 E, uh, F, because it said that there was no seat in front of it. And I was like, is this real? Uh, it's where the rear emergency exit is that they've added onto the max specifically for Ryanair to get up the passenger number. And, you know, actually, there was no seat in front of me. I could stretch my legs right out. Um, what I would say is, you know, there's A and F. If you aren't a fan of looking someone in the face during takeoff and landing, go for A, because I was sat opposite a flight attendant. So um, the whole takeoff and landing, we were just uh, sat there. We had quite a nice chat. Um, it was quite interesting because she said, yeah, the Max, you know, it's, it is actually noticeably a game changer for passengers, but um, she's not um, a fan of it, <laughs> oh. <laughs> um, of working on it. Um and she said, you know, um, it's got 197 seats. And the I think the reason they don't go any higher is because they need four, uh, they need one uh, flight attendant per 50 passengers, uh, per 50 seats. So if there were 201 seats, say, they would need an extra flight attendant, even if there wasn't um, an extra passenger on board. But the other thing I found quite interesting was just the load factor on this Max because they talk about it being the game changer, you know, is using so much less CO2. 
than the 787, uh, 737-800, but per passenger. But I would argue this in my case because I flew out on a full 737-800. So that's um, the CO2. There's 30% higher CO2, I think, but that's divided by um, 200 odd passengers. We'll call it 200. It's slightly less. On the max flight back, you know, it was maybe 30% less CO2 overall, but the cabin was practically empty. I was looking at the um, the boarding system because it said how many seats had been sold, how many people had been checked in, and the numbers were actually quite fascinating. So bear in mind, there's 197 seats on this aircraft, yep. 105 of them were sold and 93 had actually checked in. So there's more than 100 seats um, Flying empty, empty on this flight. Goodness. Yeah. O'Leary would not be happy. Yeah, he wouldn't be. But the flight attendant that I was um, chatting to, she was quite happy that she had quite a nice, uh, um, easy start. But she said, you know, the flight back would be a lot busier. And then um, then they were going to Luxembourg after as well. Um, so and um, it's an interesting hearing the rotations, though, um, and her stories. But yep, I could go on about Ryanair for another 20 minutes. So I feel like you should jump in with a segue now. <laughs> Absolutely. I'm glad you got your first Max flight. And uh, yeah. I got a milestone as well recently. I went on my first A220 flight, but uh, I won't get into that now. Um, but another airline that does operate the A220, not the one I flew with, sadly, is Air Baltic. Um, I did mention last week with Lucas when he was talking about Delta's free Wi-Fi um, that Air Baltic has also secured a Wi-Fi partner at last. Um, we took that a step further and caught up with the airline CEO, Martin Gauss, to find out more about this deal. So, as I mentioned last week, he picked Starlink, which is the product of Elon Musk's SpaceX project for his connectivity. Um, if you haven't heard of Starlink, it's some low-Earth orbit satellites. There's a whole constellation of them. Right now, there's about 3,000 in orbit. There's plans to launch at least 30,000. So, it's going to be a really big, good coverage constellation. And Starlink got the permission of the FCC last year to use the system with moving vehicles, which include ships, trucks, and, of course, airplanes. Um, with promises of high bandwidth, fast speeds, low latency, Starlink could be just the shift in development that aviation has been crying out for. You also don't get these kind of dead spots over certain parts of the world because the constellation covers the sky. So, you know, there's no issue at the poles or over certain parts of um, the oceans or whatever. Anyway, Airlines do have a wide choice of connectivity options available to them. Lots of tried and tested systems are already out there providing passengers with Wi-Fi on board. So why did Air Baltic opt for this less proven solution from SpaceX? That was my top question know. for Martin. Why did they do that? Tell me. <laughs> I am going to tell you. <laughs> so Gauss did say that Air Baltic has been looking for a Wi-Fi solution for a really long time. Um, there are options that can be installed on the A220 straight from the factory, but he didn't find the solution he wanted. So most of them come with a high cost, a long period of airplane downtime to install it, a high cost of data, which obviously has to be passed along to the customer. Air Baltic wanted to do it differently. 
And he found that Starlink was a perfect fit. So one of the reasons is because Air Baltic can fit the antennas themselves and do it very quickly. So there's literally no impact to airline operations. Um, They're going to do all that in-house. It's like a a very quick job to get it installed. He also said that um, with this system, there's no need for any passengers to sign up at all. There'll be no data collection. You literally walk onto the airplane, find the open network and log in. Well, there's no login. You just connect. So, you know, there's no extra steps for passengers at all. And best of all, it's going to be completely free of charge. Um, You know, because there's no data collection, there's no payment information stored. It's all very secure. And like I say, you're going to be able to use it for free, which I think is fantastic. There is a cost to Air Baltic, of course, of providing the service. But for Gauss, he reckons it's a good investment to differentiate the airline from the competition. Um, it's just another part of their amazing passenger experience that they're striving to provide with the nice, modern, comfortable A220. Um, It's going to be fast as well. So they've tested it. It's around 350 megabytes per second to the plane, which is faster than I get at home, even with my new fiber optic Wi-Fi that I'm so pleased with. Um, So even though that's got to be split between the passengers, because the A220 doesn't carry that many passengers, every passenger will be able to do high data intensity operations. So things like watching Netflix, making video calls, online gaming. Um, But there is a benefit to Starlink from the partnership as well because the um, system is not yet certified to use on the A220. Of course, Air Baltic is the biggest operator of the 22300 um, and has tons of experience. They're six years now into operating this aircraft. So it's a really good partner for Starlink to work with to get the type certification secured. Um, that is the sticking point right now. Um, if it was done tomorrow, they could activate the system tomorrow and we could start using it straight away. Um, They hope that the process will be done by the end of 23, um, but it might be 2024. He said it's all ready to go. It's already working on airplanes. They just need the paperwork secured and then it will be activated for passengers to use. So a bit of a game changer. You know, Delta did offer free Wi-Fi, which is great to see, um, but it does involve being a SkyMiles member and logging in and doing all the kind of admin that you need to do to connect to Wi-Fi. So this is something completely different. I'm really excited to see it and I can't wait to try it when I have my first Air Baltic flight at some point, maybe this year. <laughs> yeah, I, well, I wonder if you'll be able to um, use ADSB Exchange to track your flight um, on the Starlink Wi-Fi. I don't see why not. I mean, it's, yeah. Uh, yeah, because, it's fully internet. Well, I'm connection. just thinking because uh, Elon's not a fan because it can track his personal jet. <laughs> <laughs> That's a very good point. I don't think he's blocked it yet, though. Although he mm. did, um, he did try and block. In fact, he did block Jack Sweeney's um, Elon Jet account from Twitter, which is a shame. Mm. Um, and ADSB. Did he block them from Twitter as well? Yeah. Goodness. Yeah. So yeah, let's not get into Twitter because I could rant on about the changes there all day. <laughs> it used to be my favourite social media. Now not so much. Anyway, um, I think that's about all we've got time for today. Uh, we do hope you enjoyed the podcast, and as usual, welcome your feedback at podcast at simpleflying.com. For more great content, you can visit our website at simpleflying.com or find us on social media. Simply search for Simple Flying. If you enjoyed the podcast, please leave us a rating on your favorite podcast player. Thanks for listening. Bye.